welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chwaneka. Okay, Dr. Hatfield, open up a Bible with me, if you can, to the book of Luke, chapter 10. So the second half of your Bible, the New Testament, begins with these four historical records of the life of Jesus. So interviewing and speaking to the eyewitnesses themselves, we have these four different historical perspectives on the most influential person who's ever lived. And this third one, Matthew, Mark, and then you get to Luke. He was the physician, the doctor, and he gave us this two-part, basically, historical work on the life of Jesus and the early church. And why are we gonna look at this is maybe just to get us all on the same page. So the Doxodeo family, you'll see on the left there, we often have those up on our wall. We say that when the good news of Jesus impacts a city, and we are passionate about cities, then we see it expressed in three different ways. And that is that when the good news takes root in a city, you see faith that reaches the lost. People come to know their father. Um, but you also see love that heals the pain. And thirdly, you see hope restored to those things that are broken in our society, the systemic brokenness in our society. And we have said now as the Doxedo family globally that over these three years, 2022, 23, and 24, we're gonna spend one year each just kind of massaging some of these themes in a bit deeper. We're preaching through books and doing all of that good stuff we always do, but we're gonna every now and then just stand still at this theme. Last year we spoke about faith that reaches the last, and this year we're saying love that heals the pain. And the reason why this maybe sounds to you, last year, man, faith stretched some people. How do I reach out in my faith to others? And I've, I've heard a lot of people saying that this one of the three years is by far the simplest. Love, who doesn't love? I mean, I, I even wear my, my pink shirt for today. It's salmon, by the way. It's not pink, just for the theme uh, coming up on the 14th of Feb. Everyone's like, love is the simple one. And the reason why is because we define love the way that we want to define it. So I love my wife and my two kids here. Um, our third kitty is on a choir camp. Uh, she was really hoping for sunlight, and you can see how that turned out. Um, so I love my kids, but I also love Netflix, and I love you know, Avatar 2, and I love my guitar, and I love my work, and I love my city, and I love donuts, and we all love many, many different things. So the word love has become so kind of weak that we need to come to the place where we're saying, God, not how we define love, but how you define love. And that's what we wanna do in this series. Just begin to stir us a bit, poke us a bit. I think Borsov did that so well last week. Just saying, God, will you come and define? If you go a bit closer to this expression of ours, you'll see it's a whole bunch of little words from the dictionary as we define love often. And we're saying, no, the kind of love that we believe the Bible speaks of, that Jesus models, is a love that reaches into the city. It's not just a Sunday love. It's a Monday love, a love that, that heals the pain. And that love we discover in those three dimensions as Bosso spoke of. It's firstly meant to be a love that looks up, a love that's birthed in a love relationship with God. But then it's also a love that then looks inward. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If I don't understand who God sees me to be, I will never be earnestly able to love others and then love that looks outward, a love relationship with our city. 
So we're going to continue in these shifts that we're trying to make. How do we define love versus the powerful, challenging, inspiring vision of love that we find in the New Testament? So let's continue our journey of coloring it in. Luke 10, we have a parable that Jesus tells, and you're going to see how challenging and beautiful this is. So it says, verse 25, then an expert in the law stood up to test him, Jesus now, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And so he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, but when he saw him, he just passed by the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, he also passed on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Now Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Well, the one who showed mercy to him, he said. And so Jesus said, go and do the same. Now, a bit of context, I think, helps here for this not to be a nice story that many people inside and outside the church has heard. We all meant to be good Samaritans, right? That's like how you are a good citizen. But the context is when Jesus and his public ministry, starting at the age of 33, When that really got a bit of momentum, the religious elite, almost like the Jewish aristocracy, they were getting really nervous because of this Jesus guy. And they felt that his um, way of speaking about God and the law and the purpose of Israel and his people, it really went against the grain of how they read the law and their interpretation of it. And they got really frustrated that this man who claims to be a rabbi, a teacher of God, that he would mix with just kind of, you know, the, the rabble rousers of society, those who you're not supposed to mix with. The sinners and the tax collectors and, you know, the women of the nights and all these people that they like, no, this is, this, these are not our people. And so eventually they got so frustrated with them that they realized we're going to have to put a stop to this man's ministry and that will end either in disgrace publicly or death. Those are the options. And so one of the ways that they tried to get there is they would have these public moments in an honor and shame culture to be shamed publicly was a big thing. So they would have these moments of verbal confrontation where they would try and trap Jesus and get him to say something that would indict him. And he would maybe make a crazy claim against the Roman Empire, have him killed, maybe like a crazy claim of you know, messiahship and have all the Jewish people turn on him. So they wanted to make sure that they can get him. And who better to do that than a lawyer? Now, yeah, it was a lawyer joke, but okay, uh, no lawyers this morning. Um, and to besides the point of the joke, this is not the lawyer as we know it. These are law experts of what religious codes. So this man is like a walking biblical dictionary and he comes up to Jesus and he's gonna trap him now. So what is the question that he asks him? 
Because Jesus, you can see, very quickly summarizes what this guy's doing. Even though it seems like he's coming to Jesus very respectfully, Jesus immediately sees that this man's heart, his question is not based in spiritual growth. I really want to know. He's trying to get him into a corner. And so what does he say? Jesus is not having any of it. And so instead, when he asks this question, Jesus just flips the script on him and he says, okay, if you're asking me this question, what does the law say? How do you read it? You tell me. Answering a question with a question. And that's almost the key is that most people think, as Jesus asks, that's the point of this parable. The point of the story is how can you and I, as people that maybe are good in our hearts and we've got good intentions and maybe we mess up here and there a bit, how can we become good moral people? How can all of us become good Samaritans, live a life that's upstanding, be a good citizen, you know, be a good South African? This is such a great way to model your life on by asking, how can I be a neighbor to those around me? How can I live a heroic life, a life of love? And the fact is, Jesus does answer that question, but in a way that is so subversive and so challenging that he comes to redefine this person's picture of love. And we're gonna see that shift today as he begins in this place with having this concern with keeping the law, a concern with being moral and religious and ticking the boxes, trying to be upstanding and good. But that concern eventually blossoms into this picture that Jesus has, and that is compassion. Concern is good, but compassion is how love is truly defined. So three thoughts we're gonna look at. If I want to be someone who lives a life of love that, that truly heals the pain of our city, I wanna be someone like that. This passage firstly says, you have to firstly be transformed by the only love that heals all pain. If you wanna be someone who lives a life of love that heals the pain, you first have to be transformed by the love that heals all pain. You see, when Jesus asked this lawyer, what is written in the law? I think this guy was so chuffed. It's like, I have been waiting for this moment. So he eloquently starts quoting from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He even uses the Shema, which was this, the, you know, this saying, this religious, uh, almost creed that we said in Jewish synagogues on a weekly basis, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself, and our Lord the God is one. So he just starts rambling off. And in a sense, what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to show him that technically you are right. yes. And he says, oh, that's, that makes sense. So all that you need to do is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor is yourself. That's all you have to do. And this guy doesn't realize what he's saying. He's like, that's all you need to do. Just go and do that, and you will have eternal life. Just love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And this guy is so chuffed. He doesn't even realize what he's saying. And the wording of this question, I think, is where we also get caught up. What does he say to Jesus? Teacher, what should I do to inherit this God quality life? What should I do? And do you see the, the contrast, the almost like contradiction in his question? He says, what must I do to inherit? What must I do to inherit? Friends, inheriting something is not something that you achieve Inheriting something is something you receive based on your relationship to someone. I can't achieve an inheritance, but I can receive an inheritance based on relationship with someone. But this man says, as we often do, I step into church, I realize I've made a bit of a boo-boo, a bit of a mess of the last season of my life, 
You know, I just need a bit of sprinkling of something else, a bit of self-actualization, you know. I, just, I see that's like the end thing. You know, all the, the Hollywood elites are saying that that's, that's the thing that just takes you to the next level, a bit of religiosity, a bit of Buddhism maybe, just a bit of, just a bit of you know, self-discovery. And so what must I do? And Jesus basically, as he's trying to trap him, he basically traps himself. Saying all you need to do is just love God perfectly, extravagantly, and only love those around you in the same way. And what does he say? He says to him, in this moment basically, and this is the key of this whole parable, true spirituality is not a matter of what you can do for God, but what God has done for us in Jesus. See, we read this parable as this is a way of life. Read this parable, imitate it. This is a great way of life. But what Jesus is saying is this is the way to life. And from that, a way of life develops. If I simply try and love, it's gonna sound as ridiculous as simply love God extravagantly and love others extravagantly. Has anyone ever done that? No one has ever done that. People have made many commitments on Sunday mornings that last basically until Sunday lunchtime, but no one has ever actually truly loved God and their neighbors as themselves. And what he's saying is it's because we're trying to do this as just a way of life. Whereas what this lawyer doesn't realize is he's staring straight at the way to life. And when that way to life takes hold of your life, then you start becoming day by day, week and week out, month and year and decade in and out, you become a new way of doing life. That's what Romans 5, 6 says so beautifully. When we were utterly helpless, what must I do to achieve eternal life? No, when, I, when we were utterly helpless, God, I have everything I've ever wanted. I've got a successful career. I've got money. I've got status. I've got, I've got friendships. Or I've got nothing that I've ever wanted. My life has become just the absolute antithesis of everything I ever dreamed of. God, I've experienced trauma. I've been hurt. Things have been done to me and around me that I never asked for while we were still helpless. It says Christ came at just the right time and he died for us. What must we do? No, it begins with what has God done? It says, yes, now most people would be willing maybe to die for an upright person, might perhaps even be willing to die for a person who's especially good, but God shows his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, broke, lost, hopeless in our trauma. This is love, friends. That, that passage where it says this little phrase, he made us friends, that Greek word literally means to exchange. God in Jesus exchanged his beauty and his hope and his righteousness and his love for my brokenness, for my, for my pride, for my sense of self-justification, for my trauma, for my hurt, for my lostness. There's a story of Princess Alice of the United Kingdom who lived in the 1800s and her little daughter, she had this very piercing disease at that point. They didn't know exactly what it was in the 1800s yet, but physicians told her that you have to stay away from your daughter because if you come too close, maybe you might get it as well. And there's this beautiful painting actually where it shows the scene where she sees her daughter just coughing and it's almost like she's in her final moments and she's struggling just to, to get a breath. And it's basically, she's, she's in these last moments of life and her mom, without even thinking twice, 
What does she do? She grabs her daughter against all the wishes of all these physicians and she holds her and she kisses her on the mouth. And a couple of days later, she passes away herself. Friends, this, we're just saying about the reckless love of God. That is a picture of Jesus. That's a picture of what God does. He sees us in our brokenness, in our gasping for breath, how we are trying to use bottles and businesses and beds to heal ourselves, as we're trying to use sex and status, as we're trying to, to scrounge around and, and get an identity for ourselves. And he says, I'm not gonna sidestep that. I'm gonna grab you and hold you. I'm gonna step right into your brokenness and death. And I will exchange my life for yours. I will exchange my beauty for your brokenness. And you will become lovely, righteous, holy, blameless. Not what can you do? What must I do? It's not the question. What has God done? You know what the furnace, the engine room, the fountain, the birthplace of that kind of love is that reaches the city? It's first being found in the love that heals all the pain. I can never venture into a way of living. You will be so angry with God. You'll be so disappointed in the church. You'll be so burnt out on religion if you try and make this a lifestyle unless it is birthed from the place of an identity of love. That's why love, 1 John 3, 16 says, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. And then you see that identity statement. And so, yes, we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Identity before activity. Activity, even religious moral activity, will always lead to disillusionment and burnout. But identity in the love of God, it stirs me, it moves me. That's why Paul so confidently can say, 2 Corinthians 5.14, that the love of God compels me. It compels me. When I think about the love of God for me, something just stirs me. I cannot stand still. So if you want to be someone who lives a life of love that heals the pain, you firstly have to be discovered, found in, reborn in the love, the only love that heals all pain. But secondly, you need to then stop instead of just passing by. Stop instead of passing by. The second question this lawyer asks, even put, it puts him into an even deeper, basically, hole. <laughs> he's, he's floundering in this, in this public moment. We won't go into all the honor shame things happening in this passage, but that's basically what's happening. And so to, to try and get out of it, he's trying to maneuver. He says, okay, well, well who is my neighbor then? Aha, uh -huh, there I got you now. Jesus, you rascal. And what is he doing? He's doing what we all do with religion. Tell me what exactly I need to do to be okay. What are the exact parameters that I need to fulfill so that I don't do too much? You don't want to be extravagant with religion, right? I mean, don't be one of those like fanatics. <laughs> Go to church every now and then, pay, you know, a couple of cents, give a you know, can of food to some homeless shelter, but don't be extravagant, don't be crazy, don't be one of those people. What can I do within the bounds of what's reasonable so that I'm okay? He's asking, who are my neighbors? They must probably be Israelites. They must be those close in my proximity at least. It's like asking sexually, how far is too far? You know, what are the rules? How does this work? The, the, the religious heart, and I lived in religion for most of my life. So I'm not speaking down to you. I'm speaking to myself again here. The religious heart always wants to know the parameters that make God happy. 
When will God be okay with me and bless me? But the heart that's transformed by love has this complete opposite reaction. I don't want to please God. I am pleasing to God in Jesus. I can never please him more than I am pleasing to him in Jesus. So I want to live a life of love. So what is he saying? He's saying, yes, I see that you have great concern in your heart, but I want to take you from the place of concern to compassion. What is compassion? Definition of compassion is a feeling of deep sympathy for another who's stricken by misfortune. That's where it starts, this deep feeling. But listen to this. It's accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate that suffering. It begins as this feeling, but it blooms into a desire to do something about it. Then we have moved from religious concern to godly compassion. I'm like this, friends. I hear about flooding happening in the townships because of the rain, and I have this deep emotional reaction. I feel wrecked. I drive past kids that are homeless on the streets of Pretoria, and I have this, this deep, you know, just pain in my heart. This is not the way that it should be. I hear about people getting trampled in their workspaces, and I feel, man, this, this is not good. I, I wish someone would do something about this. I have many feelings of concern. I know you guys don't have that, but I have many feelings of concern. Now, guess what? Concern is a good thing, but it's not yet compassion. It's like a flower that's about to bloom. Man, it starts there. Man, something needs to be done about this. But concern is seeing something awful in our city and saying someone ought to do something about this. It's not right. Whereas compassion blooms and says, I cannot let this happen to my brother or my sister. I cannot stand by and let this happen. Just a couple of weeks ago, after our service, I drive back and I see one of our partners, won't expose this person, and someone was next to the road lying there, passed out, drunk, completely, I'm not sure what it was in their system, but one of our partners was there, calling someone, helping, get this person out of the street. And I realized, if not for the fact that I saw one of our partners, I wonder if I would have had anything more than concern. Oh, wow, that is really sad. I hope someone does something about that. Deep religious concern, but God says that is a good thing, but it has to bloom into compassion. Now we're getting from, I love Netflix and I love Avatar 2 to the kind of love that God has. A love of compassion. That's literally how Jesus lived his life. Go and find every New Testament reference where it speaks about Jesus and the words moved with compassion. You'll find it everywhere. When the man with leprosy, one example comes to him and he says, if you are willing, Jesus, can you heal me? And it says, verse 41, moved with compassion. Moved. With compassion, he stretches out and he heals him. So what does that compassion look like? Can we just get practical for a second here? I see a couple of markers of compassionate love for our neighbors, friends, colleagues, and family members. The first thing is it's dangerous. Practically, to stop and not just pass by is dangerous. So maybe the excuse for us often when it comes to not helping, not stepping into, is listen, it's like the Levites and the priest. What if the robbers come back? That's pretty dangerous, guys. You, you know, I have, God's got a great calling upon my life. What if I die here and now? Then all the things I could have done for God. 
See, the Samaritan was on this road between Jerusalem and Jericho that was notorious in the story, obviously, but the actual road was notorious for its violence. It was actually called the way of blood. Friends, that's like if you, if you ever drive and you see like a, a, on the side of the road, like the name of the road is the way of blood, like you know you're not meant to go in there, friends. If it's in Hausfontein even, if it's called the way of blood, you don't go in there. But this is where this mind finds himself. And how often do I want to isolate and protect myself from the ways of blood in our society? Man, this person is going through such emotional pain. I don't know. I don't think I should get involved in that. There's such, such heartache financially in this family's life. You know, that's, that's difficult stuff, guys. You shouldn't just leave it to the professionals. I don't want to get involved in those things that seem so dangerous. But what does the Samaritan do? He goes straight into harm's way, because that is compassion. But it's also inconvenient. Do you know that? <laughs> Do you know that compassion is almost as a rule inconvenient? I've never once in my life had a moment where I realized God is stirring me to act and it was convenient, never. Like on my calendar, I see it just magically appearing on Outlook. It's like, wow, I'm gonna have compassionate love for someone at nine o'clock on a Tuesday morning. I feel really good about it. I've got more than enough time set out. Even money just appeared on my bank account to do this. You know, the stars are aligning. It's never like that. Never. It's always inconvenient. So the excuse that I often have, like probably this Levite and this priest is, listen, we were on our way to do important things for God, you know, in the temple. Someone will do something, but not us. We need to get, you know, get the stuff done. But the reality is that it's always inconvenient. It says, when the Samaritan, verse 33, highlight this. It says, when he saw the man, he felt compassion and he acted. He didn't wait for God to say something. I can't do anything yet because the spirit hasn't prompted me. <laughs> That's nonsense, friends. The Spirit prompted us 2,000 years ago. He never needs to prompt us ever again. God hasn't spoken clearly that we need to intervene in this family's troubles. God has intervened in your story. He never needs to do it again. It will always be inconvenient. I think about a story a couple of years ago, one of the biggest churches in the U.S., in Houston, and they've got uh, a weekend combined attends about 50,000 people, and there was this massive hurricane, Hurricane Harvey, just devastating that area, almost 25,000 people losing their homes, $3 billion worth of damage, and people were saying, we need to open up our spaces, public spaces, we'll be able to find just shelter in, and there was this whole ruckus that the people of the city were so angry at this mega church. Not because they're a mega church, but because they decided instead of opening up their building to people that really needed help, they tweeted out something. And they said, we are really praying for the people of Houston. Now, I'm not standing in a place of judgment because, man, how many times have we failed as a church, the city of Pretoria? No doubt. But why was this so scandalous? Because the people of the city, even those who are not yet Christian, they recognize this is not Christianity. If you are Christians, it means that your love must look like the Christ that you say you follow. How can you tweet out, yes, it will ruin your carpets. Yes, some of the people will probably even steal some things in the building. It's always inconvenient. If God chose convenience, you and I would never be here. I would still be lost in all of my consumerism and sin and brokenness. But God said, yes, it's deeply inconvenient to love those who need it. But it's also unbiased. 
man, this is tough. <laughs> it's unbiased. So the excuse would be, listen, charity and love starts at home. Before we need to help all these other people, let's just make sure that you know we're in a good place, friends. That's how Israel lost its way. You are meant to be, Israel, a light to the world. But now you've become a bunch of, of people who only look out for yourselves. So it's a master stroke by Jesus that he chooses the Samaritan to be like the hero of his little parable. Why? Because the, the Jewish elites by this time, they absolutely hated the Samaritans. They hated them. They saw them as a bunch of half-breeds and people who ill-equipped to, to worship God in the ways that they meant to. So they would actually have these records of, of Jewish prayers offered up in the synagogue, asking God to please not give eternal life in his kingdom to these, to these you know, Samaritans. They're a bunch of dogs, these people. And so what does Jesus do? He's so cheeky. He's like, let me take two of your religious elite, the aristocracy, the powerful people of the Jewish religious system, a priest and a Levite. He's like the worship leader of the day. And what do they do? They sidestep this poor man. And who comes along? A Samaritan. If I, if I battle with racism in our country that almost every one of us in some form or fashion we do, if Jesus were telling this parable to us today, he would absolutely go out of his way to choose that one ethnic group that you hate, <laughs> that you struggle with. You're like, I don't, I don't mind them, but I don't want to be with them. He would go out of his way to make that person the hero of the story. And he says, the Samaritan was the one who stopped. And this, this law expert is so, he's so angry. He's so tight-lipped about the Samaritans. He can't even get his, his lips to say the word Samaritan. He simply says in verse 37, the one. He's like, that's, it's the one who, uh, I guess that's the answer. Friends, I'm, I'm, I'm challenged with this, but true compassionate love is unbiased. Yes, people who do not look like me, don't sound like me. People who smell funny and look funny and, and talk funny. It's always the case. I'm the one who probably smells and looks funny. Friends, that is love. It's not love to have concern for those who are lovable. That's easy. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. But God says, my love is unbiased. And lastly, it's costly. <laughs> Do you know that compassionate love is costly? Maybe the, the, the excuse would be, God hasn't, he hasn't told me or equipped me to do this. I don't have the resources or the time or the money or the energy or the emotional capacity in this season. It's a season where I just need to look after my own affairs for a while. But guess what? It is costly. The Samaritan did not make any excuses. He literally put his money where his mouth is. I love that. He didn't say thoughts and prayers, my friend, thinking about you. I'm going to post something on Facebook. We're going to start a campaign for you. Other people's money, back a buddy or something like that. No, I'm going to use my money and my time and my resources. Oil and wine were incredibly expensive at that time. These, this, two denarii, that was two days worth of wages for this man. So the Samaritan gave freely. It says here, he put the man on his own donkey. Verse 34. He brought him to the inn and he took care of him. He said, I will pay the bill for whatever is needed to see this man get back on his feet. I will tell you that for me, I way prefer to give a bit of money to see an issue solved. But to get personally involved with my time and my energy and my discomforts, man, that's difficult. And yet that's what I see in the life of Jesus. 
a costly love. Christianity is not saying, hey, you guys are in a big mess. It's fine. That's not Christianity. Christianity is saying God sees us in our muck and our distraction, and he at the greatest cost imaginable, he absorbs our brokenness and death. It is not just reckless, it's costly love. That is what melts your heart. Religion will never take you far enough, but a costly love melts you to the place of saying, this is who I want to be. And so finally, if you want to live a life that heals the pain, that kind of love, then we have to go and do the same. I love how this parable ends. Jesus answers this man when he says, yes, it was the one who showed mercy to him, the Samaritan, and Jesus just again, cheekily just ends it with that one-liner. He just says, okay, then go and do the same. Go and do the same. I love this one commentator on this passage. He says the following, just close your eyes and hear this. He says, once we have found this great central truth in life, that we are loved by God now and forever, we can become like the good Samaritan and say, whatever is mine is God's. And whatever is God's belongs to my neighbor because my neighbor belongs to God. The good Samaritan is not trying to keep the rules. He's not even doing his duty. He is doing what is instinctive and natural because of who he is. Do you hear that? He's saying once it's taken root in my heart that I'm deeply and forever loved by God in Jesus, you know what happens? The most natural thing becomes to love. It becomes my mother tongue. It becomes the oxygen that I breathe. I have been made to be loved by God and to love others like God. That's what you were made for. If we say, you know, an animal in, in some shelter or a lion in a zoo, it's almost like they're out of their natural habit that they die to who they are. When we live lives cut off from God and loving others, we die to who we have been made to be. That old Switchfoot song, you were made to live for so much more, but you lost yourself. God says you have been made to breathe the oxygen of love, to speak the language of love, to receive love as an identity and to live it out not as a duty, not as a religious practice, but as the most natural thing possible. You say, man, where do we start then? How do I start this? Just one thought, Mother Teresa, someone who is transformed by love. She says, if you can't feed 100 people, then feed just one. Help one person at a time. And always start with the person nearest you. Friends, I wish I could solve all the issues of our city. But imagine a church who lives by this conviction. We get together on a Sunday not to be stirred up with guilt, but to celebrate the one who freed us in love. And now we go and do the same. Imagine the, the hundreds, if not thousands, hundreds and thousands of people entering into Monday spaces, offices, communes, homes, marriages, businesses with the conviction that I'm deeply loved by God and Jesus. Now I go and do the same. I cannot solve every issue, but I can solve this issue. I cannot feed every person, but I can feed this person. I cannot help every family, but this family next to us in our complex, that family we can support. Just imagine a church like that. So I want to end. If you ever have the stomach for it, there's a documentary called India's Daughter. And it's, it's really unflinching. It's, it's upsetting. 
It tells the story of what has been now called the Delhi rape of 2012. Physiotherapy student goes home after class on an evening with a friend of hers, a male, and they get onto what they think is just a public transport bus. In the end, after the story plays itself out, they realize this is actually a bus um, that has been co-opted by a bunch of men looking for trouble. And they beat up this male student and they chuck him out of the bus and they proceed to brutally and repeatedly rape this poor girl. Literally to the point of death. And they leave her just by the side of the road. And the, the craziest part of the story for me is that they say more than 30 men and women saw this girl lying there and just passed by. And it wasn't until hours later that someone again in their context at probably great personal cost of, of being, you know, throwing your, your public image to just the wind, he picked her up and he took her to the hospital. And the doctor said if she had been helped from the beginning, they so easily could have saved this poor girl's life. But unfortunately, a couple of days later, she succumbed to her injuries. And I think about that story and I think, man, maybe I'm not going to see that level of just gruesome brokenness in our world. The one doctrine that I don't think any secular person can ever argue with is how fallen the heart of mankind is. We might differ as to why, but there is something deeply wrong in the heart of every human being that's crying out for healing. And maybe I don't see that, but I see so many things every day crying out for, for a love that doesn't just pass by, it stops. It has compassion. And I realize that the place that that's birthed is friends, you and I, we were like that girl by the side of the road. And all of my friends and my cleverness and my money and my status and my religiosity were like those people, just helpless. But it's when Jesus, you see, we think this parable is, come on, be the good Samaritan. Whereas where it begins is Jesus is the good Samaritan. I was on the way of blood, completely broken. And everything this world has to offer was just passing me by, helpless to restore my heart. But Jesus, with reckless love, with his own blood, picked me up and transform me. Friends, imagine a church. Imagine a church like us. Imagine every church in our city that lived from that conviction. He deeply loves me. Now go and do the same. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray this morning that, that we would not begin with activity, but that we would just be deeply, deeply impacted in identity by a God who, who costly and how inconveniently, God, you love us. I pray, God, that you would stir us again to have eyes to see, God, that we would see and have compassion. And may that begin with a love, God, that is reckless and deep. In Jesus' name we pray.